Samuel this evening. The children of Israel have uh, demanded a king of uh, Samuel to be the ruler of them as a nation, and uh, God has chosen for them a man by the name of Saul. He's been publicly identified to them as their next king. He will not be officially inaugurated and into the position for another chapter or so, or the end of this chapter, actually. And uh, so they know who their next king is going to be. And uh, Saul has been provided with everything that is necessary from God in order to really become one of the great, great kings in the history of the nation of Israel. And he will fall very, very short of that. And there are reasons. You know, not everything and every example in life, and certainly it's true in the Scriptures, but it's true in our personal lives too. You know, sometimes we could wish that everything that we learned would be from a positive example or something great that we've seen in someone else, but very often we learn very valuable lessons that keep us from learning them the hard way by watching the failures of other people, seeing the consequences of their decision-making, and then to know for ourselves, wow, I don't have to become a lump of coal or something like that. You don't have to follow the same path and have the same result, and, uh, and I'll learn from their lessons. And Saul is one of those guys where we can look at him and say, he really does end up in a complete failure. He's one, really one of the tragic figures in the whole Bible, but he is valuable for us because I think by the time we look at all the different characteristics in his life that caused him to derail and become the failure that he was and that he is, we will recognize um, the same tendencies to some degree or another in each one of our lives. So it gives us kind of a red flag to watch these, these things happen. And so, chapter 11, verse 1. And then Nahash, the Ammonite, and the Ammonites were kind of relatives of the nation of Israel. They were descendants of Abraham's uh, nephew Lot, but ultimately, so the kind of cousins and uh, to the Jews, but they became uh, very kind of hostile enemies toward the Jews, and it was true at this time too. And they had a, a ruler by the name of Nahash, and they came up and they encamped against Jabesh Gilead. Now, Jabesh Gilead is a city of the Jews on the eastern side of the Jordan River. We would call it modern day Jordan. You remember that the two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, the half tribe of Manasseh, before they entered into the promised land, they liked the land. It was good for cattle. They were cattlemen. And they said to Moses, Hey, listen, we'll go in and help you conquer the land with the other nine and a half tribes, but we want to settle outside of the land. And in God's permissive will, they were allowed to do that. But God warned them that it was going to create some problems for them. And one of the problems that it was going to create for them is that every time one of their enemies attacked the children of Israel, they would be attacked first because they were on the outside of the land. And so they wanted to be identified with God's people. They wanted to walk in, in the will of God, but they wanted to live, you know, a, all the way out on the edge at the same time. And so that kind of a person is going to get uh, picked off. Or they're just going to have a lot of aggravation spiritually and a lot of attack uh, that others that uh, live a little more fully in God's will 
are spared. And so this is, uh, this is the city that it was and where it was located. And all the men of Jabesh, as they were sieged now by uh, the Ammonites, they recognized the hopelessness of the situation, that they would be defeated if it came uh, to war. And they said, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. So basically they said, name the terms of the surrender. We will surrender to you. We see fighting against you is hopeless. Very little faith among the men. And, um, and they said, just name the terms, we will become your servants. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, on this condition, I will make a covenant with you that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on Israel. Well, that's a sticking point, I'd say. <laughs> I mean, how do you do that, with a spoon or what? I mean, this is really... I mean, this, is their, this is their lives, their deal. And the guy comes back and says, no... It's not enough for me to defeat you. It's not enough for us to turn you into servants. I want to humiliate you as low as I can humiliate you as men and uh, by removing your right eye. Those are the, the terms of, of the surrender. And so this is more than wanting to defeat the children of Israel. It's a determination to humiliate them. You remember when Samson, one of the, great, one of the judges of, of Israel, when he was ultimately defeated and taken by the Philistines, the first thing the Philistines did is they put out his eyes. It was a way of saying these people are ultimately and finally you know, uh, conquered. Now, the fact that they wanted to just gouge out the one eye, the right eye, means that they still wanted to make servants out of the children of Israel. They didn't want to lose the slave labor aspect of it. But by removing the right eye, they uh, effectively not only humiliate, would have humiliated them, but they would have also uh, greatly reduced their ability to rise up in some kind of a insurrection or revolt, uh, you know, by arms and, and defeat their captors, the Ammonites. And so they're killing several birds with one stone uh, here. Very, very cruel, very, very cocky, this leader, Nahash. And the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all of Israel and then if there's no one to save us, we'll come out to you. That's kind of an odd thing, isn't it? It's kind of like calling a time out. Now, Nahash probably wants to save some of his men but because even though he recognizes that he can overwhelm Jabesh Gilead, he knows there would be some casualties. He is so confident in his ability to wipe them out, and, and so confident that they are not going to find any help among the Jews to come to their help in this kind of a situation, he is apparently ignorant of the fact that God has raised up a king among the children of Israel, that the children of Israel will unite behind. So he's just looking at them as this group of tribes and clans that can't agree on anything hardly, much less defend one another or their brothers outside of the actual borders of, of Israel. So he, again, he is so self-confident that he gives them a full week to go and see if you can get a deliverer. And so the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, and they told the news in the hearing of the people and the effect that this had uh, upon the Jewish people as they lifted up their voices and they wept. I mean, they recognized it as the same. You know, for them it's not uh, words uh, on, a, in, on a page in a book. 
This is their, their reality here. So you kind of put yourself in the city of Jabesh Gilead and having relatives there and that kind of thing. And they're going to do what? They're going to gouge out their right eye and, and they have the power to do it. And so it was really a desperate situation and they began to weep over it. Now, there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. So even though he's a king yet, uh, at this point in time, he's at least been identified as the future king of Israel. There hasn't been a formal ceremony to make him king. So he's, he's still working out in the field and he's still, uh, you know, kind of a rancher here, bringing in, uh, bringing in the herd from the, the field. And Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh Gilead. And then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news and his anger was greatly aroused. This really upset him with a righteous anger. I mean, the cruelty uh, uh, of what this man wanted to do, this, this really upset him in a righteous way that comes from the Holy Spirit. There is a righteous anger. There's an unrighteous anger. We're all familiar with that. But there is a righteous anger that comes from God, and uh, this is from the Spirit of God, and he's uh, very, very uh, upset by all of it. And so he took a yoke of oxen, he cut the oxen in pieces, sent them throughout all of the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers. And uh, the sending out of these pieces of, of oxen, that was a way of getting their attention and uh, speaking to them of the seriousness of the message that was uh, attached to this. And so here was the message that was attached. Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it will be done to his oxen. And so they, this is a, to be viewed as an attack on all of us. All of us need to respond. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. And when he numbered them in Bezak, the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah were 30,000. And so 330,000 people come out, and they uh, join him now uh, to take on the battle. And then they said uh, to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Go back home, give them this message. Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, before it's noon, you're going to have help. And then the messengers came, they reported to the men of Jabesh Gilead, and they were glad. Put all those eye patches away, or whatever. I mean, you can imagine. No working on the pirate accent or anything like that. So everybody obviously would have been thrilled at this development of, of uh, this deliverance. And therefore the men of Jabesh said uh, to uh, uh, Nahash, uh, they said to him, tomorrow we will come out to you and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. And so basically they said, all right, you got it. We don't have anybody that's going to come and help us. And so if uh, we're going to come out there and you do whatever you got planned on doing. So obviously they're deceiving him into thinking that uh, he's in no danger of being attacked and that everything is going uh, just according to plan. By the way, Nahash's name means serpent. Certainly lived down to that name. We trust that that was a nickname that he received in the course of life and was not the name given to him by his father and his mother. What's he look like to you, sweetie? If he isn't the spitting image of a serpent, I'll tell you. Are you thinking the same thing I'm thinking? So he's, he's, he's earned a reputation for being 
uh, very deceitful and, and very lowly. And so it was on the next day that Saul put the people into three companies. So he divides it, 110,000 per company, going to come in from three directions on the camp of uh, the Ammonites, not going to give them a, a, a place to escape. This very good strategy. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch. The morning watch was between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. Now, depending on what time you wake up in the morning or you make your way to the commute or that that kind of a thing. But these guys are looking and saying, we'll get started tomorrow morning and we're gonna, this is going to be a cakewalk. So most people are fairly groggy when they get uh, woke up in, at that time of the morning. So it was a perfect time to surprise them and hit them. And so they hit them from all directions in the morning watch and they killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And so, you know, between noon and two o'clock when the heat of the day gets its hottest, and it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. And so uh, they had, uh, the only stragglers survived among the entire invading force there uh, of the Ammonites. It complete destruction uh, of their army. And then the people said to Samuel, who is he who said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. And you remember in the last chapter there were a few people that were less than excited about Saul being the king. They didn't bring him a gift. And, uh, and so now they're referring to those guys. Now they're flushed with victory and Saul has led them to the victory. And so now let's, you know... Uh, really, you know, let's let these guys have it and probably kill them, as we says here, to put them to death. And so that's what they want to do. And they've got all this uh, heat of battle operating in them. And Saul, to his credit, he said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished the salvation in Israel. And so he steps up and he recognizes, no, I didn't bring this victory about. The Lord did this. And we're not going to mar the great victory that God has given to us by uh, heading into the flesh and doing something crazy. All of us are going to have times in our life where there have been detractors against us through the years. And, uh, and then God will come in and do something. He'll use us in a certain way or favor will be upon our lives in a certain situation that it's obvious that God has done it. And there'll be just that little window of time where it would just be so perfect to rise up and you can real, you got, you're one up on them. You can really uh, let, it, let your enemies have it, but it will really mar and destroy the gracious thing that God has done. And so he doesn't do that, and, and he's to be commended for it. And Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. And so significantly, all the people, so at this point, everyone, there are no detractors against Saul becoming the king. Everyone in the nation of Israel here wants him now to be king, went up to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. He publicly all, and officially, all of this happens, and there they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all of the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now, Samuel in chapter 12, he takes the opportunity here to give them a farewell speech, and because they now have a king, um, Samuel has been operating under kind of two mantles among the children of Israel. He has been operating as a prophet uh, but all, and also as a judge. 
So God is, because there's now a king, he no longer needs to operate in the office of a judge. That's, that is being removed from him. God will work through the king now on that, but he will continue his office as a prophet. So as he's kind of resigning now that office, uh, he is uh, going to speak to them and, and call on them to witness to his faithfulness as a judge and his integrity that he demonstrated for long years as a judge among the children of Israel. And Samuel said to all Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice and all that you said to me and have made a king over you. And so that was not only represented a rejection of God that uh, God took personally, but also a rejection of Samuel. And so Samuel said, And now here is the king walking before you, and I am old and gray-headed, and look, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. So basically he's saying, I have, I have a very long history with you. I have been in the public limelight since I was a child in this nation. And he's basically saying, I have been faithful to God's call upon my life as a prophet and as a judge. And he said, here I am, and witness, and that's a key word. He's kind of putting himself on trial, and all of these people are witnesses. God is a witness to this kind of legal proceeding that's happening here. And he's going to call on the people to witness uh, against any kind of sin or abuse of power on his part and all of the years that he has been a prophet and a king in Israel. He said, Here I am, witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed, that is King Saul. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? I will restore it to you. He gives him an opportunity to raise an accusation against him for oppressing them or taking advantage uh, of them on the basis of the title that God had called him, uh, him to. I, I don't know how many people... You can, can stand up and speak before a whole nation and say, anybody got a beef against me that's legitimate. So this is tremendous uh, integrity that, that he has here, and he invites them to charge him with any wrongdoing and, uh, that they may have witnessed. And remarkably, verse 4, they said, you have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. He never used the position uh, to take advantage of people like Eli's sons had, even his own sons had. And then he said to them, the Lord is witness now against you. And his anointed, King Saul, is witness this day that you have found nothing, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, he is witness. So basically what Samuel is saying is that he's confronting them with the fact that they have rejected him and they've rejected the Lord as king, but they've rejected him in his office without any legitimate reason. They, they don't want him as a judge. They want a king, but they can't come up with a single reason for, why, uh, for rejecting uh, Samuel. And he wants them uh, to be aware of that. They're making a bad decision here. 
And he's making them aware of it. And then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. So now he begins to speak to the children of Israel about the faithfulness of God, how good God had been to them for so many years. And uh, and the, uh, and the whole idea is, What in the world are you people asking for a king when, you, when God has been unfailingly faithful to you for all of the years of your history. So he's driving home that point that they are getting rid of uh, a man who has done nothing but good, pure integrity in serving them, and a God who's been nothing but faithful uh, to get a king that's going to cause them nothing but, but troubles. And so the Lord had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and now therefore stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did to your fathers, to you and your fathers. When Jacob had gone into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. He got you out of Egypt. He gave you the land of Canaan. You're in the land of Canaan. And even when you forgot the Lord, they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them, speaking of that whole period of the judges, when even when they were unfaithful to God, uh, God always took care of them. And then they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, but now deliver us from the hand of our enemies and we will serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Bedan and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you dwell in uh, safety. And so, again, you've had a great king in the Lord. What are you thinking about? And when you saw that uh, Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, uh, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now, therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. You wanted this? Uh, you got this. If you fear the Lord and serve him, and obey his voice, and do not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. Now notice in verse 14 that word fear, and then the word serve, and then the word obey, and then the phrase do not rebel. In other words, what Samuel is telling them is you've got a king now, but don't think your king is greater than God. Because it still stands that you will be blessed as you obey God and you will be judged as you disobey God. This king does not change the ground rules of your relationship with God. He doesn't take the place of God at all spiritually. So all of that continues to stick. You just got a king for certain purposes, but this king isn't God by any long shot. So uh, obedience is just as important after the king as it was before the king. Disobedience is just as serious after the king as it was before the king. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. 
And now therefore stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. And so now the Lord is going to confirm this word from uh, Samuel with accompanying signs and wonders. And he said, is today not the wheat harvest, which would have put it in the middle of summer in the, in the Middle East in Israel? Their rain kind of goes just like ours does through the winter season. It's not like you're back east or something and you can get storms all through the summer. They don't have rain uh, during the winter, I mean during the summer. And so he said, hey, it's the time of the wheat harvest. Their wheat's ready to, to harvest out there in the field. I will call to the Lord and he will send thunder and rain. That's not good for a wheat crop. That you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord and asking for a king for yourself. And so he pronounces to them, gives them a, a word of knowledge, a prophecy, as a, as a testimony to the truthfulness of my words. Um, God is going to wipe out your wheat harvest with uh, thunder and with rain in order to drive home the point that, that their wickedness is great. They've shown tremendous disrespect uh, toward God. God is to be respected. This asking for a king in the face of, of his testimony, you know, the, Lord, the testimony of the Lord's faithfulness, it's just so disrespectful toward him. God is so deserving of our respect and being treated respectfully. I think about Esau who sold his birthright for a bowl of red. That's what it says. It was a bowl of chili sold his birthright with God for a bowl of chili. And I think the chili was great yesterday, but come on. We have to be careful not to disrespect God. He is worthy of all the respect that we can give him, and, and even more. This was a terrible thing that they were doing to God. And so Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. They thought, all right, the lightning will move from the crop. To, he's going to get us. For we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. So they confess that they've done wrong here, but they don't repent. True repentance would have been to throw, okay, forget the whole thing, get, we, that's it, no, we, not, uh, we want to go back to the way that it was. They, they don't, they don't want to go that far, but uh, they're, they're sorry on some level for what they did. And the Lord, and Samuel said to the people, don't fear, you've done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. So this is, I think, helpful for us. Ever made a, a, a dumb decision? Okay, good. For the sake of the tape, there was some laughter in the congregation over that, that issue. So I'm not alone on this issue. It is helpful to know that when we do something, and we should repent, obviously, but when we do something that's just like stupid, and, and sometimes, you know, the die has been cast. You can't, you can't pull that one back. And, and to realize that while I can't change my past, I can't change what this decision has set in motion related to my life, I can heed 
Samuel's warning here and the invitation of God throughout all the New Testament that I, that I can take and say from this point forward, I want to learn from the mistake that I've made here and the sin that I've committed. And I want to, from this point forward, I want to honor the Lord and I want to obey Him. Again, the Lord is a God of, of second chances. And He does remember that we're uh, but dust. And then notice what Samuel says to them um, uh, in verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake because of His nature, not because of us. So that, that's a sure foundation for His promises because it pleased the Lord to make you His people. And that's all grace, both then and now. And moreover, as for me, He said, far, from, uh, be, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing, number one, to pray for you, and then number two, but I will teach you the good and the right way. And so uh, here is uh, Samuel as he, as he speaks here and he promises that he's not going to cease praying for them. He's not going to cease being an influence for God and, uh, among them or an influence for good uh, among them. And so his ministry among the children of Israel isn't going to end with this king. And so it is a, uh, really a tremendous heart of Samuel that has been shown here. They have treated him so shabbily. He's an old man. Gray hair. Physician, heal thyself, I know. <laughs> he has invested his entire life in this people in God's work, in God's plan for this people. They can't bring one accusation against Him, and they treat Him this way. I mean, it might be second only to the cross in all of the Bible for the unfairness of the treatment of a servant of God. And yet in, in all of this, I mean, the tendency that you could have to become unbelievably bitter against these people. Don't think you'll hear another prayer lifted to God on my behalf toward you. He doesn't do it. And he said, as he says here, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to prayer, pray for you. He refused to allow the shabby and worse treatment of, of these people of him to cause him to stop praying for them. Have you stopped praying for someone because of their treatment of you? The shabbiness of their treatment of you. You can hardly stand to hear their name for what it does inside your heart or inside your mind for the next five minutes and I mean the idea of praying for them doesn't even, that isn't even something that you're willing to, you know, conceive of doing for them. And that's the kind of place. Jesus on the cross, Father forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He prayed for his enemies. Jesus calls us to pray for our enemies, those who persecute us and despitefully use us. And when we do, we're being like the Lord. And I think the other thing it does is it really saves us. 
is one of the great ways of saving us from a root of bitterness. You cannot, I cannot, pray for someone that has treated me in this way for any length of time until my heart changes toward them. It will never mean that what they did was right. But through prayer and conversing with it between God and myself and lifting it up and being like God in the situation, in praying for my enemies, what happens then is I begin to see the situation with a fullness that I hadn't seen it before. Usually when someone hurts me, it's just them and me and my hurt. That's a pretty narrow band to be processing a situation in. It's not taking into account spiritual warfare. It's not taking into account all kinds of things it's not taking into account. And one of the greatest things to do related to an enemy is begin to pray for them because not only does it affect their lives in, in praying for them, but it, it really uh, uh, helps us and helps our heart in, in the whole thing. They've got to pray New Testament prayers. I saw recently... I was online looking at the headlines and um, where one, some preacher somewhere was praying for our president's teeth to be broken in. And so he's praying some Old Testament stuff. And uh, when we get to that in the Psalms, it's legitimate and for the Old Covenant and that kind of a thing as its place. And, uh, and all, but it's not really a New Covenant prayer and certainly isn't a public prayer that relates to that way. There, there, you know... We have, uh, we have higher, in this covenant that we have with Christ, we have more powerful things to change a person's heart and mind than broken teeth and those kinds of things. There's a lot, lot more weapons the Holy Spirit has uh, than that. And so uh, here is, he, he refuses, I'm not going to sin against the Lord. You say, well, you think you... I, Far be it from me that I should sin against you by ceasing to pray for you. But he says, far be it from me that I should uh, sin against the Lord and in ceasing to pray for you. Why? Because he was a leader among God's people. And part of his role and God's call upon his life is that he would intercede for God's people. So it wouldn't just be a sin against the people. It would be a sin against the Lord. So I'm not going to do that. And, but I will teach you the good and the right way. So here comes Saul. He's the new king. And what it means is that Samuel's ministry is now going to begin to focus on prayer and intercession for the people and also, again, his office as a prophet in uh, speaking to them what they need to hear spiritually from the throne of God. Only fear the Lord, <clears throat> excuse me, and serve Him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you will be swept away, both you and your king. King Shming. It doesn't mean anything. Obedience is still king. Chapter 13. And Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years. Don't blink. It just a year went by. It's like there, little punctuation mark, and a year went by. So second year, first year, Saul defeated, defeated the Ammonites. Now the Philistines are going to come on the scene. And so in, in, in year two, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. And he, now he has kind of, he's got a formal army, a standing army, of, kind of a drafted army of, of you know, experts or 
people that are trained for warfare in the nation. And, and they number 3,000. And 2,000 of them were with Saul and Michmash in the mountains of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan, his son, in Gibeah of Benjamin. So they were situated in a couple of different places in order to kind of uh, stand against uh, any further intrusion of the Philistines into uh, the land of Israel. And the rest of, of the people, this 330,000 that came for this other battle and all, they were dismissed to go home, work your fields, raise your crops, raise your family. The nation needs to move forward. We can't have everybody in the military. So they went home, every man to his tent. And then Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. And the Philistines heard of it, and then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. So Jonathan, apparently Jonathan was given authority to take action militarily independent of his father's knowledge, because that's exactly what he he does here. So he attacks the Philistines, and, he, and it's called a, a garrison. So this was kind of a, a group of uh, Philistine soldiers that were pretty far into Israel's land. Apparently they feel like they can come and go in and out of Israel, do whatever they want, might makes right, and they were stronger than the children of Israel uh, at that time. And so it, 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 this garrison represented a Philistine hold in, in Israel's territory. I like Jonathan. We need leaders like Jonathan. To him, that's an affront that this is going on. In the light of the promises in the Pentateuch, in the light of the promises to God, to this people, and they got the Philistines setting garrisons up wherever they want in our land, he didn't like that. And, and so uh, he attacked it, the garrison, to dislodge uh, their presence. And then word of the attack, of course, made its way to the Philistines. The Philistines were much more advanced militarily than the children of Israel, and uh, they were adequately provoked by this, and so they moved quickly against the children of Israel as a result. We're told that Saul blew the trumpet, and, and, and it could be some people believe that Saul was taking the glory for a victory that Jonathan had won. I don't know. That could be there. But it, it, what Saul is basically doing in blowing the trumpet or the ram's horn, it was a way of signaling throughout the land, hey, everybody, uh, the, uh, the army, the, the 330,000 of you that headed off home you know, from the last battle, we need you back again. It was a, a call to arms uh, among the whole nation. We have some problems. And so um, they... Uh, uh, Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. So we're in trouble with the Philistines now. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. And then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots. This is probably a typo. It's probably 3,000, but that's significant enough. And the reason that um, probably a copyist missed it just a little bit or was misunderstood is it talks about not only the chariots, but then 6,000 horsemen. So that would be a perfect match with 3,000 chariots. So it's generally believed that here come the Philistines with 3,000 chariots, 
6,000 horsemen and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash uh, to the east of Beth-Avon. All right, that's scary. And when the, children, the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, this is their reaction. They realized, we are, this is dangerous, our lives are in danger, they've showed up with this kind of force. Then the people, they hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, in pits, anywhere they could hide. And in that part of Israel, lots of caves, limestone caves in that area. So they just uh, abandoned their homes, abandoned their situations, and just began to hide. And some, even some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan River into the land of Gad and Gilead, modern-day Jordan. They, got, they just got out of Israel altogether, Israel proper. And as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. This was, these were the uh, battle-hardened soldiers that were with him, kind of an involuntary uh, reaction to the situation of even them uh, trembling. It was something that would put uh, fear in the heart of, of really the bravest of of men, and then, uh, then Samuel or Saul rather waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And so apparently Samuel had uh, sent word to Saul to wait seven days for him to show up in Gilgal so that he could kind of um, oversee a sacrifice being offered to the Lord before they went into battle. That was common in, in those days. Or maybe it was kind of a standing uh, understanding that Samuel had with Saul that if we're ever attacked by an enemy, um, don't do anything. Give me seven days to get to you so that we can offer a sacrifice and then engage in the battle. Somehow uh, uh, Samuel knew, that, or Saul knew, that he was to wait the seven days. Sometimes people look and they say back in chapter, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8, that it's talking about the same seven days there. Probably not. There's probably a lot greater time than seven days between uh, chapter 10 and here in chapter 13. So, um, the, uh, Samuel, this was the understanding that they had. And so, as, as Saul is waiting for Samuel to come, uh, he gets antsy here and he said, Bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering to the Lord. No, 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 no. Kings don't do this. Priests do this. There are lines that separate, you know, one branch versus another branch. Separation of church and state. But how separation of church and state ought to work and was intended to work was a separation of the state out of the church, not the church out of the state. I'm getting worked up, aren't I? That's the way it is, though. So he's going to, he thinks he's, he's, you know, feeling his Wheaties here a little bit, and uh, he's going to be the king because he's the king. He can just jump over and start doing what only the priests can do. He wasn't supposed to do that. It might not have been a big deal to him, and it wasn't a big deal to him. It was a big deal to God. So he, he, he does something uh, pretty bad here. And it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came. So Samuel was on time, and Saul went out to greet him, 
that he uh, meet him that he might greet him and Samuel greeted him with a question and said what in the world is it that you have done here and so Samuel uh, confronts him concerning his sins and his sins were twofold here number one he disobeyed God's word he was not allowed according to the law of Moses to offer a sacrifice only the priests were to do that and number two he had disobeyed Samuel the instructions of of God's prophet and so here is the kind of the foundation now for the interaction that happens here and Samuel says what basically what in the world have you done and then Saul answers he's, he's just as wrong as wrong can be but here's flaw number one this guy can never admit that he's wrong even when he's caught red-handed he is one of the biggest blame shifters in the whole Bible one of the biggest excuse makers in the whole Bible I remember my, one of my bosses at the phone company, he had a little sign on his desk that said, a man who is good at making excuses is usually good for very little else or something like that. Well, it's hard to give him excuses when he has those right that on his desk when you came in at the end of the day. It's true. And, and so notice this barrage a fourfold series of excuses that just begin to pour out of Saul's heart and out of his mouth. He said, excuse number one, when I saw that the people were scattered from me, the reason I did this, Samuel, is the people were flaking out on me. It's the people's fault. And that you did not come within the days appointed. Samuel had come within the appointed days. But he said, Samuel, it's all your fault for taking so long to get here. Second excuse. And that the Philistines, number three, gathered together at Michmash. It's the enemy's fault. The devil made me do it. And then I said, the Philistines will come down on me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to the Lord. In other words, the, the circumstances forced me to disobey God. You'd have done the same thing if you were in my shoes. And this guy has just excuses just come flowing out of his, his mouth just as fast as they can. Now to me, and we're going to see this, it's not going to be the last time we see this in Saul, but I want to stop here just for a moment on him. To me... I do like to look at the different characters in the Bible and especially in the New Old Testament and to be able to encapsulate them with one phrase. And when you look at it, it, Saul, one of the phrases that you could encapsulate him concerning is he's a man who never ever repented. God is going to confront him over and over and over. He, he had such a low value for obedience to God's Word. And every time God confronts him, he refuses to repent. And so you could look at that and say, he's the man who never repented. But if you look at his life a little bit closer, and that's what we want to do tonight in the coming weeks, you look at him and you say, why did he never repent? There is a common denominator every single time God uses someone to confront Saul with his wrongdoing. The first thing that came out of his mouth was an excuse. He was an excuse-making machine. And it was his excuses that always kept him one step 
away from repentance from his sin, sin that was ultimately going to lead to his destruction. Excuses for sin are very dangerous in our lives. There has to be the ability, no matter who we are, when we're confronted, red-handed, related to the Word of God, to be able to say, you are right and I am wrong. And I admit that I am wrong there. I ask for your forgiveness in the situation. I ask for God's forgiveness in the situation. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John chapter 1. But the word confess there is more than verbal. It means to see my action or my sin the same way that God does. It includes repentance on it. And so to be able to confess my sin to God, ask for His forgiveness, ask for the forgiveness of significant others that I have sinned against so that my sin does not become a root of bitterness in their lives. And He never did that. Every single time it was an excuse that He gave for His sin. Now why make a big deal about this? Because you and I live in the blame-shifting capital of the universe called the United States of America. And even if we are not as quick as Saul is to come up with four excuses off the top of our head when we're confronted with sin, we live in a culture where our mom, our dad, our uncle, our aunt, our next-door neighbor, another player on the football team or a peer at school or some counselor or what who will serve us up all manner of excuses for disobeying God and how we are the victim in the situation. And for a short period of time, they are lauded as kind of the heroes, the people that really understand, the people that really love, they really have compassion. But they don't because they keep people on a path that has destruction at the end of it. And so for our own lives tonight, and one of the great lessons from Saul's life is when we're wrong, we're wrong. And it's important in all of our lives, and, and especially in leaders, but in all of our lives. We're, all le- we're not followers in this world as Christians. We're all leaders. And we're all going to fall short. And we're all going to have to say, you know, I'm sorry, I missed it there. Would you forgive me? I was wrong. Just repeat that after me. Just, I, I'll say it first, you say it. I, I was wrong. All right, you survived, right? So there's, there's life on the other side of it. So we know physiologically we have the ability to say it. So we remove that as an excuse. That's just a matter of our pride. But it is so, so important for a husband to be able to say it, for a wife to be able to say it, for a parent to be able to say it, for a child to be able to say it, for us to say it to one another in the body of Christ, and to be able to say it to people that are lost. And the recognition that we aren't perfect, but when we do fall short, we know how to handle the situation. And for him, he was just an excuse-making machine. And it always kept him one step away from repentance, from his sin, and ultimately that failure to repent, he ends up uh, being uh, destroyed. And so he said, and then I said, verse 12 again, the Philistines will come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore I felt compelled. 
Feelings. Whoa, whoa. Now, some of you have no feelings. Others of us have a lot of feeling. Can't sing, but we have feeling. So here, here he is, and, and he's the kind of guy, and, and I think he's an emotional kind of guy, and when push came to shove in the situation, he went with his emotions over the clear teaching of the Word of God. I felt compelled, and I offered a burnt offering. Now, when he says this, he's not feeling bad about it. He feels like all of those are legitimate excuses for what he's done, and Samuel ought to be able to accept any one of the five and, and get him off the hook. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. Samuel has no future in secular counseling. I don't know what it costs an hour for secular counseling these days, but uh, some, most often it's sometimes going to tell the person what they need to hear. I don't say that everybody's like that, so I, I'm, I'm being facetious a little bit. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly, and here's the issue. Excuses, it doesn't matter. Your fear, it doesn't matter. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. What don't you understand about command? For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. It's a funny thing. I don't, maybe I'm uh, just uh, uniquely afflicted by this. But I, I've known the Lord since 1980. It doesn't make me the old wise owl, but that's long as some of you have been born. The world it just makes me old. Ish. I've always been serious about the things of the Lord, and I certainly haven't been perfect by any stretch of imagination. The Lord knows that. But I, I want to obey His Word. The funny thing is, after having walked with Him pretty seriously all these years, I find that at this point in my life, I, I have to slow myself down as much as I know, as much experience as I have, you know, for, you know, however much it is, and it's a fair amount, you know, for someone like me. And I find that these, these situations arise, big situations, little situations, and I, more than ever, I have to just stop myself and just say, what does God's Word say here on this? I think it's so easy as a Christian after a while. we got information like crazy in the noggin. We know so much. But we can just go days and weeks and months and we're just making all the decisions. Flying by the seat of our pants, whatever that means. Instead of just stopping and saying, what does God's Word say to do here? Because I don't want to do anything other than that. And sometimes experience and time in title can get us a little sloppy in that area. And so he, he, he needed to just, what does God say, and, and obey that. And Samuel said uh, to him once again, in, there in verse 13, he said, you have not kept the commandment of the Lord, 
your God which he commanded you for now the Lord would have uh, established your kingdom over Israel forever but now your kingdom shall not continue the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept uh, what the Lord commanded you evidently when the Lord looked at Saul and um, his uh, unwillingness to obey the Lord, his elevation of his excuses above just simple obedience uh, to God's commandment, he and in his in the elevation of his self will over obedience to God's commandment. The Lord could look at at Saul and see that this is this is a characteristic in his life that he was never going to turn from. Saul's going to rule for about another 15 years. God has rejected him. God could just look and say, this fellow is never going to allow himself to grow out of this. And so very early on, he's rejected. For, God says, a man after his own heart who is going to obey him, who is King David. King David is a pup in Bethlehem at this time. He's just a little nothing old guy. If you wanted to see him at church, you'd have to go into the toddler room probably to see David at this point in time. And yet here is God speaking to Saul, rejecting Saul, and God saying, I already have my eye on the one that's going to take your place, and this one is a man after my own heart because he obeys my commandments. I think it's wonderful to think about our children that way, to think about our own lives that way, to think about the children in the church this way. How God can long years before we ever see what it is that He has in mind for a human life, He's already picked them out. Nobody would have looked at David in Bethlehem at this time and ever saw anything other than the lowest sheep herder in the whole family, let alone the king of Israel. But God knew what He was doing in that kid's life already at that point in time. It's exciting to obey the Lord. You ever look at David and you wonder, and... Well, we'll save that for when we get to David. I know you'll be on the edge of your seat. It really is fabulous, but I'll keep it to myself. It's the new me. Verse 15. Then Samuel arose and he went up uh, from Gilgal to Gibeah of uh, Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600. So even his 3,000 in the face of this, this great Philistine force... Uh, he's down to 600 that are sticking with him. And Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned onto the road of, to Oprah. Uh, Ophrah. Ophrah, not Ophrah. So it's just bad dental work. Ophra to the land of Shual. Another company turned uh, to the road to Beth Horon. That's my excuse. And another company 
turn to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. And so you've got a, when you've got a force like this, what do you do? You send out raiders. They're foraging parties to strip the surrounding land of their food in order to feed this great Philistine army that's come into the land. Now there was no blacksmith to be found in throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines had said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. But all the Philistines would, or all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for sharpening was a pin for the plowshares, the mattocks, and the forks, and the axes, and to set the points of the goads. And so it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found, weapons only found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So the Philistines had learned how to develop weapons, probably because of their Grecian background, out of the Greek kind of area of the world, knew how to use iron in the, in the making of weapons. The children of Israel, not only are they completely overwhelmed numerically, but in terms of weaponry, the, the Philistines have uh, iron weapons, they have chariots, they have horses, and this uh, army of Israel has essentially clubs and sticks and stuff like this. Um, the Philistines purposely uh, kept the children of Israel. They did not pass on to the children of Israel the ability to learn how to develop the metal and work the metal, uh, not only for agriculture, but in order to prevent them from ever being able to develop weapons. They've been successful up to this point. And so things are really in a bad way as we finish here in chapter 13, where the children of Israel are terribly outnumbered. They are very much out-equipped, and the Philistines are, uh, you know, pressing upon them for vengeance over the attack, and yet the Philistines will lose in battle. But we'll pick that up uh, next week. Let's stand together. If the worship team come forward, that would be great.